finances can be a sensitive issue, right, for for a lot of us. But, you know, being open about your financial situation, you know, just sharing that, I don't know if I can afford this today, the cost of the visit um, or the cost of my medication. It opens up at least a dialogue so we can say, okay, let's see what we have in terms of resources within our system. Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick, and this is Salute Talks. As the coronavirus pandemic sweeps throughout the U.S., one personal and political issue is taking center stage for most. The cost of and access to quality healthcare. Statistically, Latinos and other disadvantaged groups experience some of the worst outcomes concerning this issue. Moreover, experts say it will only get worse as this outbreak endures. Earlier this year, and prior to the spread of COVID-19, Dr. Matteo Benegas, a health services researcher at the Kaiser Permanente Center for Health Research, and Dr. Rebecca Jones, the assistant director for the Institute for Health Promotion Research at UT Health San Antonio, joined Salute Talks to address these issues and how the healthcare system is serving and not serving all patients equally. Mateo, can you just go ahead and provide listeners with a little bit of a background on uh, who you are and what got you to where you are today? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Las Cruces, New Mexico, you know, so it's very close to the, the U.S.-Mexico border, close to El Paso and uh, Ciudad Juarez. Um, you know, I was kind of on a track to medical school initially. That was kind of my goal, and uh, I was fortunate to be connected with some great mentors early on that got me looped into research, you know, more uh, public health research. Prior to that, I really didn't have a, a good sense of what that was. And so, uh, I, again, I was just really fortunate to come across with them and really have people kind of help me um, through each step and kind of create a pipeline for me. So I went from Las Cruces, New Mexico State University. I went to University of uh, Washington, where I worked with uh, Betty Thompson, Dr. Betty Thompson at the Fed Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, um, really focused on uh, kind of community health, public health, but all focused on uh, cancer. From there, I went to the uh, National Cancer Institute where I did my postdoc in, in the uh, Cancer Prevention Fellowship. And again, worked with an incredible mentor, uh, Dr. Robin Yabroff. And it was there where we really uh, started to build our work around uh, a financial hardship from cancer. And uh, I then was able to go to Kaiser Permanente here at the Center for Health Research. I started to work with them while I was at NCI in the fellowship and it just was uh, an opportune moment where my mentor there was retiring. He was a a cancer health services researcher and so um, he asked me if I'd like to join him, join them, but join him and uh, you know, really uh, big shoes to fill, and so I'm trying to do that little by little. Um, I'm curious on what led you to this area of research that you're studying now. Is there a personal connection? Is there just passion there? Um, so at the time, there was a report out that had showed that um, Latinas along the border area had higher cancer mortality than Latinas in the interior of either country. And so I was working with um, some clinician uh, scientists there at New Mexico State University, Dr. Morados, Morados and Dr. Bird. Um, 
they had a study where we were looking at bre uh, breast cancer screening and cervical cancer screening along the border, looking at the, at the rates there, and then looking at the barriers and the facilitator to that screening. And what we discovered was, you know, some of the main barriers to these women getting screened was related to costs and insurance. Right? They said uh, accessing those screenings is hard and it's expensive. And so those were kind of the primary, again, uh, barriers that we discovered. And that kind of just sparked my interest in this area of really looking at, you know, more of the social and economic issues that we face and how that kind of um, interrupts our health care and potentially our health. And so that kind of just got me on that track and that's really what what did it. I would be curious um, from both your perspectives, again, either from your backgrounds growing up in border communities or even through your research, um, could, could you paint a, a picture for listeners, right? Like actually show them what it means to not have access. For someone like me who grew up in the suburbs outside of Houston, um, there was not there, you couldn't go a couple miles without seeing a clinic or a hospital or something like that. So you paint a picture maybe of someone that you knew or someone that you're researching. What was it like for them to not be able to access that care or have that quality of care? And what did that mean for their lives? So, I mean, so what does it mean to live in a community like that? So I, yeah. what I can contribute there would be there's colonias. And so along the Texas-Mexico border, really along the entire U.S.-Mexico border, you have these little areas called colonias. And that, you know, the definition as it's been defined is areas with no electricity, like no running water, no paved streets. And so it's just impoverished, these pockets of in, impoverished populations. And those are all across like the lower Rio Grande Valley. Um, you know, and when you think of what does it mean to have access to care for an individual or a family um, that's been someone in that family has been diagnosed with cancer. One, it's like, well, it's probably late stage, right? There is something that got them into a hospital likely, or they're chronically ill, and then they get this diagnosis of stage four cancer of some sort. And so that's one component of access. So there was no access to even get diagnosed um, on time. But then at the same time, it's just, now they're having to navigate this system with really potentially low education, low resources, and they don't really have what they need to do it. And so it's not, I mean, it's hard to say, well, what does it look like to not have access because it's so complex? Like at every corner, there's something, another barrier that these individuals have to try to overcome. And I think that that is a part of the, right, there is no easy answer. Um, and that's kind of, I think, where listeners need to see is that you take that issue of access of quality and you think it's simple, but then you break it down and you say it's this cascading effect of things. And um, I would imagine, even in your research, something even less severe than cancer, getting a cold, can have a significantly higher impact on health than, say, someone getting it in San Antonio because you can just go to the doctor or see other care. Is that true? Definitely so. I mean, I can give an example of, of a case where um, we were working with a patient. Um, we call them members in, in Kaiser Permanente, but a patient. Um, she was uh, an older individual. Um, she was retired, had a fixed income, right? I think she was on Social Security. Uh, I don't think she had a very large um, 
a pension or anything like that. She was a, a blue-collar worker all of her life. She had come into the system. We saw her. She had a history of um, sleep apnea, so she had, you know, those, uh, like a BiPAP, or, you know, and so she was using those. But she needed one that could work in her vehicle because she lived in her vehicle. She was homeless, right? And so this was just the first you know, experience where we found her in, in, in the healthcare system, right? It was something for the sleep apnea. We later found that she had a late stage cancer uh, diagnosis, right? So, which was a shock to her, right? She, she didn't know she was that sick, um, but she couldn't afford the medications for it, right? Uh, uh, these were oral drugs that, that, that they were giving her, super expensive. Um, so it was a matter of working with her. She was Latina, so she had language barriers. Um, and so it was really, you know, a goal for us to work with her to navigate the system, but really sitting down, understanding what are her preferences, right? What are her cultural uh, values so that we work with her uh, in a way that's most comfortable. And so, you know, she couldn't get some of the treatments and all that, but we were able to finally get her some medication cost assistance and get her into a temporary home at least for the meantime. For most cancer care, can you illustrate to listeners how much of an economic burden impact having cancer will make on someone's life? Yeah. Uh, so in terms of, you know, the costs, just the kind of the, the big picture, the costs, it can be, you know, uh, tens of thousands of dollars a month for treatment, right? And that's just, again, all the costs. And so you could imagine over the year, that's over $100,000. And that's, a lot, right? It's kind of outrageous. And, and um, over time, as, as, as cancer care costs have risen, or medical care costs as a whole, but cancer care costs especially, um, more and more, a, a bigger portion of those costs are having to be paid by us as patients out of pocket. And that can create a huge strain, not only on the patient, but on their family. Hmm. Yeah, so to your point, right, so you get a diagnosis of cancer, you have to try to afford, how are you going to afford all of those medications and the treatment? You're out of work because, you know, for whatever reason, maybe there's a side effect. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, we also have a population that they don't even have insurance. And so our population has that other layer of complexity added to that. So even if you, cancer doesn't discriminate, but at least if you have some form of insurance or safety net of some sort, you will still have that financial burden, but maybe you won't feel as defeated by it. And I think that's something that we see with a lot of the the cancer patients that we have at our Mays Cancer Center is they just feel defeated when they don't have insurance. They're not even able to really get the support that they need. Um, And that burden is even greater for those individuals. And, And I know some of the work that you do in your research, you are in incorporating that financial component to help navigate for these patients. And I think that's critical. It's one of the things that we're not doing right now, but um, you know, we do try to at least help them navigate their services either during treatment or at survivorship using social workers. So, you know, I think that there's a, a conversation um, that happens culturally outside of the work that researchers are doing. Um, I know personally there have been even times for me, I am have great health insurance. Um, and there are times when I still, um, will, if I'm a little sick, even with my great health insurance, I will be like, well, 
let me try to wait it out a day or two. And so for those groups that you're working with who they know from stories of friends and family members that these costs can be seemingly insurmountable. Is this way we're doing things now, is it causing people to not receive the health care that they need? The rise in the amount of costs that each of us are having to pay, even people with great insurance like yourself, that is definitely um, a barrier, even within cancer, where, just like you said, we're seeing people are, let's say, not picking up their medication, or let's say they are, but they're kind of trying to spread it out. They're taking a pill every other day instead of every day, so that it'll last two months and not just one month, right? so they don't have to go. We've seen things where people skip chemotherapy their uh, sessions, you know? Um, so absolutely, yes, these issues are coming to a point where it does affect their necessary care when they're not receiving it. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Rosalie Aguilar, Project Coordinator of Salud America. As an organization, our mission is to help create a culture of health equity for Latinos. We work toward this goal through countless hours of research, writing, editing, and producing. If you believe in what we're doing and want to support that work, please consider donating to our cause at salud.to backslash donate. Thank you. Hi, this is Rebecca Jones, Assistant Director of the Institute for Health Promotion Research. Our organization serves as a research powerhouse that fuels Salute America's content. Here at the IHPR, we investigate the current state of health inequities in America and how that impacts the Latino community. Our research investigates cancer, chronic disease, and other health disparities among Latinos in South Texas and beyond. To learn more about the IHPR and our work, visit salute.to backslash IHPR. Thanks. So moving into that more helpful question is um, something that I picked up on and, and both of what you're talking about is the community aspect, right, of community healthcare workers, patient advocates. How can someone who is listening to this um, and they are finding uh, a thread that they are, I've experienced this or someone that I know has experienced this, I want to be a change maker in this issue. What are some ways that um, someone who doesn't have like a lot of knowledge about the healthcare industry or anything like that can start today to start making a change in this issue and the research you guys are doing? Really looking within your community. There are a lot of organizations that are there to provide a whole host of services, whether it's, you know, kind of um, cost assistance programs or even uh, food banks or, you know, those types of organizations that really work with community members to provide those types of um, resources for those in need. Um, there are a lot of um, healthcare systems that have um, cancer survivor support groups. That's a great way to connect with your peers. Even, and what I was going to say is that, um, or what I am going to say is that, um, Everybody's been touched by cancer, right? Everybody kind of has a story, right? Whether it was a friend or a family member or yourself. And so um, being there in those types of groups, they're very receptive because of that, right? So really sharing with one another and trying to build just that um, social support system to be able to help one another. And I would say that um, 
even like the American Cancer Society, they have tons of kind of a, a local satellite um, offices where they also provide services across the board. So that's, you know, another organization where you can reach out to say, I'd like to help. What are you guys doing? There are the, the cancer walks a lot, right? Organizations that host those, Susan G. Komen, all those kinds of things. So there's a lot of opportunities, I feel like, to potentially, if you're really um, energized and really want to help it, um, get involved, um, are there. I would, I agree. I think it's, you know, naturally, when it comes to cancer, and this is my kind of opinion, but I would say that people become advocates for, I want to help when they've been personally touched somehow. And it's just something that the people do. But I, I think, you know, it is the concept of just trying to find like local chapters, trying to find support groups. Um, and it's not even just for the patient itself, it's for the support systems and just looking for things that are happening in, in your own community to, to do that or to start one if one doesn't exist. Yeah. And I would add um, sharing your story. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a lot of um, even online venues where you can go and there's just, you know, t several either uh, cancer patients, cancer survivors, family members that are, you know, in those types of, um, they don't call them chat rooms anymore, but you know, those um, online platforms, let's say, where you can share your stories. And that's a great way to say, um, I had the same experience, I reached out to this organization, whether, whether it's in your community, national organization. But again, it's just a, by telling your story, not only can you connect with others, but someone can learn something and kind of take that piece of information and it may potentially help them. The other thing I'd like to add, just from like a profession, like a, an occupational perspective or more like a professional perspective is this, the fact that navigators and community health workers are so critical to the delivery of care. And it's the idea that an individual sees their provider, if they have cancer, they're probably seeing them more than twice a year for half an hour, I get that, right? But the reality is like we live in our environments, we live in the people that we consider our community and our society, and we're only spending maybe a couple hours, right? Maybe eight hours, I don't know, some percentage of hours with your provider, but you're living in your community. And so I think it's just the idea that having an, a promotora or a navigator or social worker like as part of that healthcare team is really critical because they're the ones that get it. They're the ones that get it. They're the ones that know where the food pantry is or they're the ones that I have a, 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 a hookup at like the clinic that can get you in. And it's, you know, so I think it's just putting the value where you can maybe get the most bang for your buck. And I don't like monetizing like care, but that's kind of, that's another reality of, of delivery of care is there's the financial perspective and you get, in my opinion, a little bit more when you can incorporate the people that understand the lived experience. Is there any sort of talking points you guys can share of how individuals can go out and whether it's, you know, um, some people have said you can use your voting power to vote for people who are advocating for different kind of health care or something like that, like maybe a kind of way of taking that question. Is that something I think we can speak to? I mean, I would say, you know, one thing that I think a lot of people always suggest is, you know, 
talk to your representatives, especially with the issue that you mentioned about whether it's local representatives or, you know, state, national, right? Just talk to them about, especially about this issue around health insurance, right? It's a medical debt in the U.S. is, you know, rising super fast. And it's not very uncommon anymore. Um, and so really, again, sharing that story saying, you know, my premiums are very expensive. I'm having to make trade-offs now in my daily life because I'd rather, you know, our family have insurance coverage throughout the year, so we're buying less food or we're buying, you know, uh, food at a certain area that's more affordable. Um, again, the issue about the kids in college, right? Things like that, sharing those stories are powerful because I think slowly we, our representatives get the picture, like if we don't listen to our community members, then perhaps they may not get voted in the next time because they're not listening, right? Or they're voting for someone who gets it and who says, yes, you know what, we need to make a change in the way that um, healthcare is provided in the U.S. Start with the insurance, you know? So just those types of things I, I think are, can be very powerful. Or even, you know, like um, when you have, um, you know, the, uh, um, the community, uh, what am I, like the, at the city council meetings, things like that, right? That's a venue where you can speak out or again, online, that's another venue you have a voice there to be able to share those stories. And I would agree. I think that the one thing is also like when you go, so with survivors, right? So I think it's a real fear of individuals that have chronic disease and cancer that if our health system changes and policies change, people with pre-existing conditions. So once you go into survivorship, it's possible that a healthcare company will have the opportunity to say, I'm not going to insure you or I'm gonna charge you an insane premium because you are a cancer survivor. And so I think it's, you know, having those conversations, it's, and I do think that elected individuals understand, like, if you tell them a story of this was my experience with the system or this is what will happen, I, it's when it, so it's the concept that I'm a survivor and I still have something to contribute to society. Mm. And I just need a little bit of protection to allow me to continue to get my health insurance coverage so I can contribute to society. And I think it's, you know, they think of the dollar figure of it's just too expensive to keep you insured versus from a societal perspective, it makes sense for me to maybe somehow control the cost of a premium so you can continue to contribute in the workforce and contribute to society. And it, it's a change in perspective, really. Um, you know, and I know here in San Antonio, there is the city was trying to get the paid sick time, paid sick leave, right? And it, it, it's tied up in legality right now because organizations don't want to do it. But our local cancer advocates in the community were trying to say that time will allow your employee to go get screened for their cancer screenings or go take care of their they're sick, like their spouse that's going through, whatever the case may be. But you are just providing a little bit of protection to someone who is giving you really good work. And it will help you in the long run because you won't have to reinvest and find a new employee because they had to leave work to go take care of their sick spouse or family member. So it's all a change in narrative at the end of the day. It's like 
we're telling the wrong story. We're telling the negative story instead of the story of can we just help this person continue to contribute to our society? And we don't do that. We see it as burden instead of an opportunity. You know, um, we've heard that um, patients, sometimes they feel that by sharing that information, by expressing that, that it could affect their care. They're like, you know what, if I say something, my provider may not, may, may give me this treatment. Not the best treatment, but they'll give me this treatment because this is what I can afford. But that's really not the case, I would say, that I've ever experienced. You know, I mean, they're, Dr. John's saying, they're, we know the, the goal of your provider is to get the best care for you that they can. And so, you know, by sharing that information, asking the questions, you know, you can go like the Best Buy and look at, at the price of, two TVs that you're considering, right? And so you have, you know all the features, you know, this is a smart TV, this was not all that, right? But, so you should have the same information in your healthcare system. So ask, say, you know, I would like to know, what are the costs, what are my out-of-pocket costs gonna be? Can you find out that information for me? They may not be able to get it on the spot at that moment, but it's very likely they can get it for you soon thereafter. And so, again, just asking the questions uh, and, and, and sharing those information uh, is key, whether it's financial or not. I, I need uh, a ride to my chemotherapy appointment. I can't make it. Maybe they can get you a, a bus voucher. Maybe they can get you a taxi, you know, uh, uh, ride assistance. Uh, all that information, again, like you said, is changing the narrative so that uh, we consider the healthcare system as just an, an extension of us that is trying to help us again achieve the best possible health but for us to be able to do that, it's, we need to share the right information. Exactly. It's one way for medical professionals, advocates, those who are receiving medical treatment, uh, one action they can that we all can take is start um, having more open, honest, productive conversations with one another. That's correct. <clears throat> and even you know, if it's if, you, if let's say it's not your doctor who can have that conversation with you. Maybe it, there's someone in the system or at the clinic that can, or they can connect you with, you know? And so again, it's just sharing that information, asking those questions. Thank you to Dr. Benegas for joining us in this discussion concerning healthcare costs in America today. To learn more about his work and the Kaiser Permanente Center for Health Research, visit research.kpchr.org. To find this link and more info, visit this episode's webpage at salute.to slash talks. Salute Talks is produced by Josh McCormick and the media team at Salute America. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online at salute-america.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social platforms at Salute America. Watch our award-winning videos on YouTube by visiting salute.to slash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening, and as always, we hope you enjoyed.